Chapter 10 of What Shall We Do? by Leo Tolstoy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 I have never since experienced such a feeling of compassion towards men, and of aversion toward myself, as I felt in the Oppen's house. I was now filled with the desire to carry out the scheme I had already begun, and to do good to the men whom I had met. And, strange to say, though it might seem that to do good and to give money to those in want of it was a good deed, and ought to dispose men to universal love, it turned out quite the reverse, calling up in me bitter feelings and a disposition to censure them. Even during our first tour a scene occurred similar to that in Leopin's house, but it failed to produce again the same effect, and created a very different impression. It began with my finding in one of the lodgings a miserable person who required immediate help, a woman who had not eaten food for two days. It happened thus. In one very large and almost empty night lodging, I asked an old woman whether there were any poor people who had nothing to eat. She hesitated a moment, and then named two. Then suddenly, as if recollecting herself, she said, Yes, there lies one of them, pointing to a pallet. This one, she added, indeed has nothing to eat. You don't say so. Who is she? She has been a lost woman, but as nobody takes her now, she can't earn anything. The landlady has had pity on her, but now she wants to turn her out. Agafia, I say, Agafia, cried the old woman. We went a little nearer and saw something rise from the pallet. This was a gray-haired, disheveled woman, thin as a skeleton, in a dirty, torn chemise, and with peculiarly glittering, immovable eyes. She looked fixedly beyond us, tried to snatch up her jacket behind her in order to cover her bony chest, and growled out like a dog, What? What? I asked her how she managed to live. For some time she was unable to see the drift of my words, and said, I don't know myself, they're going to turn me out. I asked again, and, oh, how ashamed of myself I feel, my hand can scarcely write it. I asked her whether it was true that she was starving. She replied in the same feverish, excited manner, I had nothing to eat yesterday, I have had nothing to eat today. The miserable aspect of this woman impressed me deeply, but quite differently from those in the Athens house. There, out of pity for them, I felt embarrassed, ashamed of myself. But here I rejoiced that I had at last found what I had been looking for, a hungry being. I gave her a rouble, and I remember how glad I felt that the others had seen it. The old woman forthwith asked me also for money. It was so pleasant to me to give that I handed her some also, without thinking whether it was necessary or not. She accompanied me to the door, and those who were in the corridor heard how she thanked me. Probably my questions about the poor provoked expectations, for some of the inmates began to follow us wherever we went. Among those that begged there were evidently drunkards who gave me a most disagreeable impression— but having once given to the old woman, I thought I had no right to refuse them, and I began to give away more. This only increased the number of applicants, and there was a stir throughout the whole lodging house. On the stairs and in the galleries people appeared dogging my steps. When I came out of the yard a boy ran quickly down the stairs, pushing through the people. He did not notice me and said hurriedly, He gave a rouble to Agafia! Having reached the ground, he too joined the crowd that was following me. I came out into the street. All sorts of people crowded round, begging for money. Having given away all I had in coppers, I entered a shop 
and asked the proprietor to give me change for ten roubles. Here occurred a scene similar to that which took place in the Oppen's house. A dreadful confusion ensued. Old women, seedy gentlefolk, peasants, children, all crowded about the shop, stretching out their hands. I gave, and asked some of them about their position and means, and entered all in my notebook. The shopkeeper, having turned up the fur collar of his greatcoat, was sitting like a statue, glancing now and then at the crowd, and again staring beyond it. He apparently felt, like everyone else, that all this was very foolish, but he dared not say so. In the Oppen's house the misery and humiliation of the people had overwhelmed me, and I felt myself to blame for it, and also the desire and the possibility of becoming a better man. But though the scene here was similar, it produced quite a different effect. In the first place, I felt angry with many of those who assailed me, and then anxious as to what the shopmen and the Dvorniks might think of me. I returned home that day with a weight on my mind. I knew that what I had done was foolish and inconsistent, but, as usual when my conscience was troubled, I talked the more about my projected plan, as if I had no doubt whatever as to its success. The next day I went alone to those whom I had noted down, and who seemed the most miserable, thinking they could be more easily helped than others. As I have already mentioned, I was not really able to help any of these people. It turned out that to do so was more difficult than I had imagined. In short, I only tormented these men and helped no one. Before the last visiting tour, I went several times to Janov's house, and each time the same thing occurred. I was assailed by a crowd of men and women, in the midst of whom I utterly lost my presence of mind. I felt the impossibility of doing anything because there were so many of them. Besides, each one of them, taken separately, did not awaken any sympathy in me. I felt that every one lied, or at least prevaricated, and regarded me only as a purse out of which money could be drawn. It often seemed to me that the very money extorted from me did not improve their position, but only made it worse. The oftener I went to these houses, the closer the intercourse which I had with the inmates, the more apparent became the impossibility of doing anything. But, notwithstanding this, I did not give up my plan until after the last night tour with the census-takers. I felt more ashamed of this visit than of any other. Formerly I had gone alone, but now twenty of us went together. At seven o'clock, all who wished to take part in this last tour began to assemble in my house. They were almost all strangers to me, some students, an officer, and two of my fashionable acquaintances, who, after having repeated the usual phrase, C'est très intéressant, asked me to put them into the number of the census-takers. These fashionable friends of mine had dressed themselves in shooting jackets and tall traveling boots, which they thought more suited to the visit than their ordinary clothes. They carried with them peculiar pocketbooks and extraordinary-looking pencils. They were in that agitated state of mind which one experiences just before going to a hunt, or to a duel, or into a battle. The falseness and foolishness of our enterprise was now more apparent to me in looking at them. But were we not all in the same ridiculous position? Before starting, we had a conference, somewhat like a council of war, as to what we should begin with, how to divide ourselves, and so on. This conference was just like all other official councils, meetings, and committees. Each spoke not because he had anything to say, or to ask, but because everyone tried to find something to say in order not to be behind the rest. But during the conversation no one alluded to the acts of benevolence to which I had so many times referred, and, however much ashamed I felt, 
I found it was needful to remind them that we must carry out our charitable intentions by writing down, during the visiting tour, the names of all whom we should find in a destitute condition. I had always felt ashamed to speak about these matters, but here, in the midst of our hurried preparations for the expedition, I could scarcely utter a word about them. All listened to me and seemed touched. All agreed with me, in words. But it was evident that each of them knew that it was folly, and that it would lead to nothing, and so they began at once to talk about other subjects, and continued doing so until it was time for us to start. We came to the dark tavern, aroused the waiters, and began to sort out papers. When we were told that the people, having heard about this visiting tour, had begun to leave their lodgings, we asked the landlord to shut the gate, and we ourselves went to the yard to persuade those to remain who wanted to escape, assuring them that no one would ask to see their passports. I remember the strange and painful impression produced upon me by these frightened night lodgers. Ragged and half-dressed, they all appeared tall by the light of the lantern in the dark courtyard. Frightened and horrible in their terror, they stood in a small knot round the pestilential outhouse, listening to our persuasions but not believing us, and evidently, like hunted animals, prepared to do anything to escape from us. Gentlemen of all kinds, town and country policemen, public coroner and judges, had all their lives been hunting them in towns and villages, on the roads and in the streets, in the taverns and in the lodging houses, and suddenly these gentlemen had come at night and shut the gate, only forsooth in order to count them. They found this as difficult to believe, as it would be for hares to believe that the dogs had come out not to catch but to count them. But the gates were shut, and the frightened night lodgers returned to their places, and we, having separated into groups, began our visit. With me were my fashionable acquaintances and two students. Vanya, with a lantern, went before us in a greatcoat and white trousers, and we followed. We entered lodgings well known to me. The place was familiar, some of the persons also. But the majority were new to me, and the spectacle was also a new and dreadful one, still more dreadful than that which I had seen at Leopin's house. All the lodgings were filled, all the pallets occupied, and not only by one, but often by two persons. The sight was dreadful because of the closeness with which these people were huddled together, and because of the indiscriminate commingling of men and women. Such of the latter as were not dead drunk were sleeping with men. Many women with children slept with strange men on narrow beds. The spectacle was dreadful, owing to the misery, dirt, raggedness, and terror of these people, and chiefly because there were so many of them. One lodging, then another, then a third, a tenth, a twentieth, and so on without end. And everywhere the same fearful stench, the same suffocating exhalation, the same confusion of sexes, men and women, drunk or in a state of insensibility, the same terror, submissiveness, and guilt stamped on all faces, so that I felt deeply ashamed and grieved as I had before at Leopin's. At last I understood that what I was about to do was disgusting, foolish, and therefore impossible. So I left off writing down their names and questioning them, knowing now that nothing would come of it. I felt deeply hurt. At Leopin's I had been like a man who sees a horrible wound on the body of another. He feels sorry for the man, ashamed of not having relieved him before, yet he can still hope to help the sufferer. But now I was like a doctor who comes with his own medicines to the patient uncovers his wound only to mangle it, and to confess to himself that all he has done has been done in vain, and that his remedy is ineffectual. End of chapter 10